welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. I'm Tim Houlihan. You've arrived at the podcast that will delight your brain with insights from researchers, authors, and practitioners that emerge in simple conversations and funny, unexpected exchanges. Tim and I believe that our guests share some of the most fascinating insights when we're just hanging out, having a nice conversation, laughing about the silly stuff, and thoughtfully responding to cool ideas. And of course, going down rabbit holes whenever we can. (laughs) I've got to tell you that our guest in this episode hit it out of the park. I couldn't agree more, Kurt. Our guest is Kwame Christian, and he is the best-selling author of a book on negotiations called Finding Confidence in Conflict. He's the director of the American Negotiations Institute, the host of the popular podcast, Negotiate Anything, a business lawyer, and a professor of negotiation at the Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. Let's just say that he's a busy guy. Classic underachiever. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know? Seriously, we were glad that, we, that he spent some time with us talking about how to be more effective in our negotiations. We don't handle the emotional side. We don't even get a chance to to even wrestle with the psycho with the with the substance at a high level because we're not even engaging in the conversation with our higher level thinking. It's just two people emoting at each other, and we wonder <laughs> why why things are going so poorly. And how to reframe our negotiations. And so, when people ask me what is conflict, I'd say conflict is an opportunity. So I challenge people to see to say, hmm. Where is the opportunity here? What, where is it? If you are creative enough, you can find it. And that more than just a win-lose or win-win session, he said that negotiation is really the art of discovery. But really, negotiation, in my opinion, is the art of deal discovery. We, we're going to come together. We're going to share information. We're going to ask questions. And we're going to try to be creative enough to see if there is a deal to be had. And if not... No harm, no foul. I'll move on. That's it. He also dropped a soundbite bomb on us when he was talking about how to be aware of things breaking down during our negotiation that we just can't resist sharing with you. One of the things we have to do is recognize once somebody shifts from thinking um, on a, in, in a way that's a higher level thinking, like using your frontal lobe, actually thinking on a deep level um, versus thinking emotionally. They're, they're the amygdala leaps clues. Whoa, full stop on that one. But we <laughs> talked about so much more. We talked about personal identity and negotiations, potential regrets of the future self, compassionate curiosity, and how to negotiate with loved ones. That one, I think, is really important. Yeah. And he didn't mind geeking out with nerdy psychological terms, which I loved. (laughs) It was a fantastic conversation from a practitioner who has done his homework on how to integrate behavioral science into his work. And I just have to say that Kwame has one of the most eclectic playlists we've ever heard from any guest. As a Caribbean American, he's got some amazing sounds to tee up. And we have a fantastic uh, list of artists in the show notes for you to check out. Right now, we need to keep moving to share some other important news. Oh, yeah. Uh, first, we want to express some gratitude to our friend Brian Ahern, who introduced us to Kwame. And in case you guys are wondering, we're not going to diss either of them just because they're Ohio State guys. And that's not only because Brian sent me a really cool pair of Ohio State socks, and, <laughs> and they're really comfortable. No, you're not admitting that on 
the podcast, are you? Oh, they're they're really comfortable. I like wearing them, so I got to be nicer to those Ohio State people because I'm primed now with my Ohio State socks. Oh, okay. Well, we're just here to say that we are grateful to Brian who introduced us uh, because this was a terrific conversation we had with Kwame about negotiation. We'd also like to express our thanks to Ira for becoming a subscriber on our Patreon campaign. Honestly, his kind words made us blush a bit, but we think you should hear it from him directly. He said, Your podcast is my favorite thing to listen to. Your guests are amazing, and your way of talking to them is so cool. I teach behavioral science to undergrads, and I actually added your podcast to my syllabus. If this isn't love, then what is? Wow, that is some serious love. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Ira. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you'd like to join Ira and the throngs of groovers who are already subscribing, head straight out to our www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves and sign up today. I'm not sure if it's throngs, but (laughs) there's a few people out there helping us out. Join them. That's great. And with that, we invite you to sit back with a fine glass of compassionate curiosity and listen to our conversation with Kwame Christian. Kwame Christian, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, we are super, super excited to have you. So are we are, and let's get started with a speed round. So tell us, do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. Mm, All right, same here. American, we do. We didn't do coffee, so I was raised on tea. Wow. Yeah. I was raised in a coffee household and just couldn't stand the taste of it. So I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tea guy. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite sports star or favorite musician? Hmm. Oh, this um, is a tough one. He's, he's yeah, contemplating I mean, here. Well, my, my favorite mu- musician is dead. So that could be kind of weird. Well, um, you know, we're suspend <laughs> all, you know, physical laws of, of the universe and you have them be alive or her alive. So cool. But, Let's go with it. So Bob Marley and Kwame. Oh, there you Bob go. Bob Marley, Bob, <laughs> the Bob. Oh my gosh. We, we just found out that, uh, that we have a new puppy and our dog responds really, really well to Bob Marley. Oh, that's great. <laughs> we get to uh, wait in vain, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, he's just like, whew, the dog is just chill with wait in vain. It's just fantastic. That's great. <laughs> that is great. It's hard not to chill with the, with Bob playing. I, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, would you rather learn a new instrument or a new language? New language. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. All right. You know which one? So, so I um, I speak English as you can tell. Um, and then <laughs> we I, noticed. So intermediate Spanish. So I studied abroad in Ecuador and have a minor in Spanish. So I can, I can survive in, in, uh, in uh, Spanish speaking countries. I am fluent in pig Latin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I would add, add French to that. Oh, very good. Okay. Good well, deal. Uh, your, your family's from Jamaica, right? And is, is French one of the Jamaican? Well, uh, the, Caribbean. So my dad's Caribbean. from oh. Dominica and my mom's okay. from Guyana. Okay. And so um, both of them have English as the, the native language, but the, the Creole is like a French patois in uh, okay. in uh, Dominica. So I'd be able to kind of at least understand it. A little bit more. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> Coming home from a long day at work, cinnamon toast crunch or granola? 
Oh my gosh. Oh, what kind of question is this? <laughs> Cinnamon toast crunch all day. <laughs> all, right, all right. So, so I had to bring that in just because I, I saw your TED talk that, that you were talking and, and, and you might have gotten a little upset with your wife a few times about eating the last bowl of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, right? Yeah. it's And the, the funny thing is it still happens. <laughs> and now my, my four-year-old is, uh, he's adept enough to to get it himself and he does the same thing so um i'm gonna to need to have a secret stash yeah there you, go. there you go yes oh well yeah. actually it was really interesting in, in your ted talk when you when you talked about that because you used it as this element to, to, to kind of talk about negotiation and, and how you do that and various different things. So uh, just to start off, you, you know, you are, uh, you kind of focus in on negotiations. Tell us a little bit about that and how did you get into that? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a business lawyer by trade. So negotiation is, is what I do. So I'm uh, of counsel at Carlisle Patchen and Murphy in, in addition to what I do at the American Negotiation Institute. And um, really when it comes down to my passion, I love I love teaching negotiation because originally what I wanted to do was be a therapist. That's what mm. I wanted to do because my, my undergrads in psychology. Um, and then I, I got swept into politics and I said, okay, I want to be a politician. Then I, that's what led me to get the law degree and master's of public policy. That's what, where that combo comes from. Uh, but then as I started to learn more about politics, I said, I do not want any part of this lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. You so, are a smart man right there. Yeah. So for me, when it comes to negotiation, really, it's about me putting myself in, an, in a position where I can help people. Because what we always say is the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. Mm. And so for me, when I'm able to help people to overcome their fears, anxieties, and all of those things related to the difficult conversations they're having in their lives, not just in traditional business negotiations, but difficult conversations in general, these everyday discussions, we're, we're helping them to live the best version of their lives. So this is my really the avenue I, I, I use to, to go back to my psychology. Um, negotiation, the word negotiation is really just a branding tool. That's yeah. really it. It's all about the psyche. Well, you've even gone so far as to say that uh, a good good negotiation skills leads to a happier life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think the thing is for, um, for negotiation, people don't really understand what a negotiation is. They, they think about these really stuffy conversations, car sales, house sales, um, those smoky rooms, <laughs> you know. Um, but the reality is we're negotiating all the time. And so the definition I like to use for negotiation is anytime you're in a conversation and somebody in the conversation wants something. So really, I don't, I don't think about negotiation like a tool. I think about it more like a life philosophy. I want to filter every single interaction through the lens of negotiation. And then that helps us to be more intentional about the way that we go about interacting with each other. Well, give us an example, if, if you could. Could you, can yeah. you walk us through a, a, a simple example of this? Example. So Kai, four years old. <laughs> okay. So last, last night, um, he was out of bed. And, um, and so I, I said, uh, hey, Kai, all right, why, do you, why are you getting out of bed? What's wrong? Well, I'm, I want somebody to cuddle with me. Okay. Well, Kai, did, did we cuddle with you before? Yes, you did. Okay. So what do you think the reason is that we have you go to bed when you do? Oh, so I can get big and strong. Well, do you want to get big and strong? Yeah, I want to get big and strong. All right, guys. So what do you think you should do right now? Well, I should stay in bed. 
There you go. <laughs> Negotiation one. So instead wow. of, of, of uh, approaching it through an authoritative approach, just as a parent with maximum leverage, you, four-year-old, stay in bed now. Do what I say. Do it, right? I could do that. Number one, it would be less effective. Number two, he wouldn't feel uh, good during the process. And number three, we miss out on the learning opportunity that he has by learning to communicate and express himself in the process too. And so I, I use negotiation every day as a relationship building tool. And the thing is, when you filter every interaction through this lens, when those bigger negotiations happen, you're always ready. You're never caught off guard. So you have a, a component that you, you talk about compassionate curiosity, and it sounds like actually in that conversation that you had with Kai, uh, there was some compassionate curiosity that came out of that. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about that methodology and how you, you approach that? Yeah. So in my TED talk, I talked about this, but in my book, I go a lot deeper. So the mm -hmm. book has the same name, Finding Confidence in Conflict. And so with the, the framework, it's three parts. And the first part is acknowledging and validating emotions. The second part is getting curious with compassion. And then the third part is joint problem solving. And um, the, the strategy behind this is really just laying this framework over the psychology that we all know. Because the reason why a lot of times we fail in these difficult conversations and negotiations is because we don't handle the emotional side. We don't even get a chance to to even wrestle with the psycho with the with the substance at a high level because <laughs> we're not even engaging in the conversation with our higher level thinking. It's just two people emoting at each other, and we wonder <laughs> why why things are going so poorly. Yeah. Classic human in interaction right there, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I, I find this particularly interesting that, um, that uh, as, as Kurt brought up, this whole compassionate curiosity uh, is really different from, from just this, this e emoting exchange, right? We're, we're too often caught up in our, in our quick and, um, and responsive, uh, activities to actually stop and think, right? You as a father, you took time to stop and think with, with your four-year-old son rather than just uh, doing this. It's hard for us to stop and think. How do you help people have that moment where they stop to think about something rather than just boom, 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 uh, rather than just be reactive? Yeah. And I, I think that's something that we, that we all have to acknowledge. This is difficult. And what I tell people is that we are developing unnatural responses to these situations because mm. the natural response is, is usually the thing that you want to do, the things that you instinctually want to do or say in this conversation is the wrong answer. <laughs> That's usually yeah. how it is, right? And so in my book, I talk about developing the habit of engagement. So thinking about negotiation as a life philosophy and taking these opportunities to negotiate every day, even on these lower level types of negotiations with family, friends, colleagues at work, um, it helps to develop that habit right? Because it's not natural to engage in the way that, that I'm describing. And so when you think about a habit, uh, oh, this is great. This is a, a, a nerdy psychology podcast. So let's get into it. Yeah, so yeah, it, definitely. It's not, it's not just about thinking about it like a habit. Hey, this is something I regularly do. Let's talk about what a habit really means. What is it really? Let's use the word grooves here, right? Yeah. So essentially, we're, we're creating these grooves in our brain that make it more likely for you to engage in this behavior. And so when you think about what it takes to actually uh, use cognition at a high level, 
the parts of your brain that are associated with habit forming are not even there. It just becomes who you are. We're talking about changes in the basal ganglia, right? Mm -hmm. These are things that just happen automatically. So for me, when it comes to engaging with people in this way, it is automatic. It's not natural, but it has become natural to me because of constantly filtering every interaction through this framework. And so uh, building up those habits, obviously habits take, uh, you know, that you can look at, at, at a habit loop. There's the, you know, there's a cue, there's a, there's a behavior, and then there's a reward afterwards. So how do you go about starting to, to get yourself into a, a habit of, of this type of thinking and response? Yeah, we'll, we have to reframe the way that we think about these difficult conversations. You think about the way that any animal determines what's going on in a situation. We have that approach avoid uh, type of uh, uh, mentality here. If I see it as a threat, I'm going to avoid it. If I see it as something that's, an, that's positive, I'm going to approach it. And so when people ask me, what is conflict? I'd say conflict is an opportunity. So I challenge mm. people to see, to say, hmm, where is the opportunity here? What, where is it? If you are creative enough, you can find it. It's an opportunity to learn, opportunity to strengthen a relationship, opportunity to improve a relationship, solve a problem. And they're, they're, the, the opportunities are endless, right? And as you start to train yourself to have this opportunity framework when it comes to these engagements, then you're going to start moving toward these conversations more often. It starts with your mentality. And as you start moving forward to them, that's when you start to develop that habit. Now, we also have to rethink the payoff too, because we always think about um, whether I win or lose in negotiation, we think about it only in terms of did I get what I want? But again, there's always going to be a payoff, a positive payoff if you're creative enough about it. So maybe you don't get exactly what you want, but you can engage in a way that strengthens the relationship. That's a win. Maybe you don't get what you want, but you use the framework and you uh, you hold yourself to a high standard and you engage respectfully and you improve. This is a, this is a practice. Any skill, you practice it. So this is a practice session. I think about mm -hmm. every every single interaction as a practice session. Sweet, I get a I get a, a, an opportunity to practice here for free here <laughs> at, at at the grocery store. Yeah, I'm going to have this conversation. So and then, so regardless, it's a it's a win win. Not win win in the traditional negotiation sense, but win win in that if I get what I want, I win. If I yeah. don't get what I want, I still win because I got better in the process. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that win win thing because that's that that's a, a big curiosity to me. But first, how did you get to this perspective, how how did you come to reframe these the this the idea of conflict as an opportunity? When you think about it, there's this joke in psychology that <laughs> anybody who is in psychology, who's studying psychology, they're really studying themselves. Yeah. Um, right. And so for me, I was a people pleaser. It was really hard for me to stand up for myself, have these conversations. And so this was a lot of me working on myself. And then subsequently recognizing that other people have the same challenge. And so that's how I got to this point. Really, I, I think about um, the people struggling to engage, just like any other phobia. What can we use? Let's use the fundamental tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's see what we can do to work through this. And it, it fits really nicely. Yeah. Well, it, and you talk about being a pleaser. And I think there are a lot of people out there who would probably say that's a personality trait that they that they have. And and with that, there is this fear of conflict there, the, the idea that 
I, I can't say something because then they will feel like I don't like them or it may in, in, engender or endanger, not engender, in, endanger the the relationship that we have. So if I'm a pleaser, if, which actually I kind of am, what do I do to really change that mindset? I mean, is it is it really just as simple as, as shifting that mindset to saying that this is an opportunity as opposed to being something I should be fearful for? Or, or is there other tricks that we can do? Yeah, there, there are other tricks because I think we should we should layer these things. All of okay. these things kind of fall on top of each other. And the thing is, <laughs> when somebody's afraid, you can't just say, hey, stop being afraid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that works all the time. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's I never thought of that. <laughs> right. And so for me, what I do is I say, listen, it's okay to be afraid. Just be afraid of the right thing. And mm. so I, I moved from the, the fear of failure to the fear of regret. Will I look back on this interaction and regret the way that I had it or did not have it? And I recognized when I evaluated my performance in difficult conversations, if I actually had the conversation, regardless of how it turned out, I, I felt really good about myself. I looked at myself and I'm like, that's a guy I can respect. Mm. That's what I want to be look at. I want to look back on my behaviors and say, that's a guy I can respect. But then on the other hand, if I avoid the conversation and uh, with this uh, mythical goal of, of preserving the relationships through avoidance, I look back and I'm like, I don't, I don't like that guy. Mm. I don't like that guy. And now sometimes in the moment, the issue is that we don't have that perspective. We're just living here and we get this fear, fear focuses, right? It focuses you and it focuses you oftentimes on the wrong thing. We need to get some perspective. And the way that I do it is by having kind of a, a deathbed perspective, which is a little bit morbid, but it <laughs> definitely pulls you out of the moment. And so I say, if looking back on this, when my life is done and I think back to this very moment, how will I feel about what I did or didn't do? How will I feel about my decision to, to not engage in this conflict? Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is, a, this is deeper than just what is at issue right now. Uh, this is about self, self-respect. And so once I started to, to think about these interactions in that way, it became a lot easier to, to make the right decision. So for a, a part of that sounds like there's a self-identity that comes with this, right? So you are looking at this through a lens of, who am I as an individual? And and are my actions then reflecting who I want to be as, as that person? And so the, the reframe is, is more than just reframing the situation. It's reframing who you are and, and how you show up in the world. Is, is that an over kind of a statement of there? Or no, would you agree with that? Yeah. That's a perfect synopsis. That really is. And um, it's so funny. You think about um, people who might be life coaches, business coaches, and all this stuff. You might be a business coach, but then, but you've never made a business. <laughs> or you might be a life coach and your, your life might be in shambles. And people kind of look at that and they say, well, what, what is that about? What is that about? It's because as a life coach or a business coach, whatever it happens to be, as that advisor, or think about it even as a friend situation. Somebody as a, as a friend could give great advice, but they're not following their own advice. It's easy to see what other people can do from the outside, can or should do from the outside, because you have the benefit of perspective. 
you're not feeling that emotion. People make bad decisions because they are not thinking through it. They're making emotional mm-hmm. decisions. A lot of times in negotiation, one of the the most uh, difficult things for people to struggle with emotionally is pressure. They'll make bad decisions simply to alleviate the pressure, right? Um, and that's we we want to avoid that. And so when what what I had to do for a long time before it became a habit doing this in this way when it relates to negotiation and conflict in particular and just general life choices, I had to ask my, myself, who's the guy I want to be? Mm. Who is the guy I want to be? Okay, what would he do in this situation? Well, I guess I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what I would listen to. It Even sounds so simple. The, right, it sounds simple. It's difficult to do, especially at the beginning. But in after you start to get used to it, it, it almost becomes kind of like a joke. I, you start to feel that fear, the pressure. That To me, that doesn't go away. I just change the behavior, right? That's the, that's the difference. Yeah. So let's go back to the win-win thing. I, for decades, we've been on this the win-win solution. It's if you win and I win, then everybody wins. And it, and so oftentimes in, in my work life, it just felt like a bunch of baloney. It just didn't feel like it was really sincere. It felt like people who were saying, okay, what we want is a win-win solution meant that uh, was sort of code for, I'm going to get what I want and you're going to feel good about me getting what I want. <laughs> and so is, is win-win a myth uh, or is it is it a reality? And, and and if it is a reality, Kwame, tell us about how we can achieve that. So it's funny that you use the word myth because in a, an episode, February 2020 of this year, I have an episode with Alan Sang called Negotiation Myths. <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. It, it creates a false dichotomy because oftentimes we, we think about win-win and juxtapose that with uh, win-lose. It's not mm. that simple. It's really not that simple, right. and if you are a, if you approach it that way, you you run into some problems. If you have somebody who's win win negotiating with somebody who's win win, hey, that, I mean that's cool. Everybody's generous, sharing information. Things can work out really nicely. But <laughs> what if somebody who's win win goes against somebody who's win lose? What's going to end up happening is the person who thinks in that win win mentality is going to bear the entire burden of adjustment because they are going to say, this is a win-win solution. I need to be generous here. I'm going to give this to you in order to trigger reciprocity. And the person who's win-lose says, why, thank you. I'll take that. And then you do it again. Why, thank you. I'll take that. And so it just becomes a train wreck. um, If you go up against a win-lose type of person, the the reality is what we have to do is we have to have a, a flexible approach. We need to yeah. be able to adjust the situation. You know, we have to have multiple paths to victory. And depending on the person on the other side, depending on the situation as a whole, depending on your personality makeup, um, these are all things that we need to consider when it comes to um, appro- our approach to negotiation. And so I think about it like any other strategy creation. We have to have a very, very clear goal. Then from the goal, we backtrack and we create our strategy. And from our strategy, we backtrack and create our tactics. And we have to do that after making a a thorough analysis of the situation. And if you are just going to use the same strategies and tactics for every situation, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, and it sounds to a degree like 
the the win win if we're looking at the the outcome of that negotiation, particularly if you're thinking business and and you're negotiating cost or you know terms of of an of an agreement, et cetera, and you have your goals and they have their goals, uh, you may not get to a win win there, right? You might somebody might might leave that negotiation saying we didn't get what we wanted, but I think your earlier conversation was there's a win from the perspective of what did I learn from that situation? How did, how did I approach this? How did I take the insight? So it's, it's being aware enough to be able to say, all right, what can I take from this? And can I maybe build? So we might've lost in this, this short term negotiation piece, but did I build that relationship up so that next time we can do better and that I understand things better? Maybe I'm misconstruing that, but that's, yeah. that's one of the things that it, it came across as me from, from yeah. me. You're right. You're right. And and here's something else to consider, too. Um, a lot of times people talk about negotiation as the uh, the art of deal making. But mm-hmm. really, negotiation, in my opinion, is the art of deal discovery. Ah. We're going to come together. We're going to share information. We're going to ask questions. And we're going to try to be creative enough to see if there is a deal to be had. And if not, no harm, no foul. I'll move on. That's it. All right. So, so in your TED talk, uh, and again, I hate to keep coming back to it, but it was really wonderful. And so, every every listener, you should definitely go out there and, and get his book, but also uh, go go watch Kwame's TED talk because it's 15 minutes of, of packed with with a both laughs and and lots of insight. But one of the things that you mentioned, and maybe you've improved on this, but one of the things that you mentioned is that you know you apply these principles and uh, to 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 your work, and you do it. You know, you you got that pretty much down but you find it that's a little bit harder in your personal life. Um, and, and I think that's probably true for, for many of us. I know when I go into work and I, I'm thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we have to have these tough conversations? How do we have to do this? You know, I, I, I put on that work persona uh, per se, and I don't necessarily do that in my personal life. So do, do you find that to be true with, with the people that you interact with and work with? And then what do we do about it? Yeah, it's it's tough. And that's something I struggled with for a long time. Just really honestly, in the last couple of years, I started to figure it out. Being ah. really honest. Yeah. Wow. Um, it, it, but your it, wife uh, still eats the cinnamon toast crunch. <laughs> Listen, some people can't be helped. <laughs> that's, that's really what I learned. I will, um, I will go, I, I, I go back to um, another episode we had with Jen Goldman. She talks about freeing herself from conflict. Uh, she yeah. has a great book on the topic. And really, she says, some sometimes you're in a conflict pattern that just doesn't end and you have to find other solutions. And so <laughs> my solutions is is make more money and buy more cereal. <laughs> That's really I like that. the, the basement is stuffed. With cinnamon exactly. toast there you go. Never run out. All right. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it's tough. And here's the thing. It takes a lot of self-awareness, a lot mm-hmm. of self-awareness. You're more likely to get emotional when somebody's close to you. Um, cause the reality is for me as a lawyer, I really care about my clients a lot and I care about what happens to them and I care about their outcomes. But ultimately when, when the day is done, the, the problem isn't mine, mm. you know, that's, yeah. that's the, that's the reality. And, um, it's, it's easy to disconnect from other things for, with work too. This is just business. That's really it. Um, and, uh, for me, at least it's easy to do that, but at home, I come home and I, I expect to be understood. That's yeah. that's what happens. You should see my heart. And uh, when when it doesn't happen, I'm like, why don't you get me? It's been over a decade. Um, and that's not persuasive. <laughs> no, and it's, it's not reality either, right? I mean, exactly. I, 
been married 20 plus years and it's still like, don't you get this? I mean, 20 years. And it's like, well, you never talk about it. I guess like, okay, that's part of it. Exactly. And so I had to realize, okay, what this again, let's get some perspective. If it was a listener of your podcast or if it was a client, what would you tell them to do? Mm. Okay. Now I started making the right moves. That was it. That that simple mindset helped me to make the right moves. And really? then, I, yeah, that was that was really it. So in the moment, I'm a lot better now because I've given myself that perspective. I slow down and say, if you were talking to somebody else, what would you tell them to do? Um, that that helps. And then another thing I've recognized, and this is not something I suggest for everybody, but again, you try new things, you evaluate the the responses, and then you use the right tactics. A tactic that's often not used for good reason is negotiation or conflict resolution via text. Turns out when I'm talking to Whitney and it's a heavy conversation, it goes a lot better over text message. That is the only relationship where that is true. Why do you think that's the case? I think because I'm trained in conflict resolution, I I can kind of sit in it a little bit better um, than than she can. And so by going into, by having the conversation via text, I can recognize when she's getting a little bit more emotional and then it's easier to, to inject some time. So I can say, all right, I'm going to give this about 30 minutes before I, before I respond, slow down the process. And it makes it less likely for me to make a mistake too, emotionally. And so one of the things I always say is that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Mm. You know, once you say certain things or make certain mistakes, you can't come back. <laughs> yeah, and right. so um, I, right. I I can take the time and wordsmith my my responses really really well, and it it helps significantly. And also, there's a paper trail too because yeah. I can go back and say, listen, we we actually talked about this. If you go back to the text at, at this time, um, because again, if somebody's emotional, your your memory is not the best either. Um, so it, it makes it easier for people to kind of backtrack and review. And even if it's not a situation where there's been some kind of commitment made, it provides you with a tool of self-reflection where you can look yeah. back on the, on the transcript and see what somebody was doing after you've given yourself a day or two to calm down. Yeah. I think there's two things that you, you, you said there. One is, is you can slow the process down. And I think that's really important. Even, even in, if you're not doing it on text, right? If you are just in a conversation uh, that heated, you know, immediate response, if you can just take a couple breaths and slow that down, um, you know, that, that can help. And then you talk about the emotion side of, of this and, and being able to, how that emotion inhibits some of our cognitive functioning, right? And we, we know that when you're under stress, particularly acute stress, which may be in, in one of these things, you're feeling that fear, you know, your, your amygdala takes over. You, you get, you, you get that amygdala hijacking and your prefrontal cortex gets, you know, offline more. And, and you, to your point, you're not thinking in the same way. You're, you're processing your memory of those situations gets hyper-focused. Uh, and you miss much of the nuance and various other aspects of it. So h- how do you how do you deal with people um, in, in your work and how do you teach them, you know, to, to maybe slow down and to, to realize some of these emotional things are coming in? Yeah, I, one of the things I have them do is think back to some of the conversations that they've had that didn't go well. Mm-hmm. And what are the commonalities there? Different people have different patterns. Right. And then that helps them to understand. Sometimes in the moment, it's hard to recognize where things are 
starting to go uh, awry. But then in hindsight, you can look back and say that was the moment. Because the thing is, in these difficult conversations, uh, not all moments are created equally. There are going to be mm-hmm. some moments that are more important. And you need to recognize those moments. If you don't recognize those, then you can't do the right thing and, and up your game at that time. Um, one of the things we have to do is recognize once somebody shifts from thinking um, on a, in, in a way that's a higher level thinking, like using your frontal lobe, actually thinking on a deep level um, yep. versus thinking emotionally. They're, they're, the amygdala leaves clues. Um, <laughs> I, wish I would have thought about that before I wrote the book. That is a cool statement. That is, that is an awesome. Statement. <laughs> the amygdala leaves clues. Yeah, yes. the amygdala leaves clues. What is it? Right. That I'm yeah. noticing the posture change. I'm noticing that the voice elevates. I'm noticing the different in, difference in the body language. Uh, those type of things. The pacing changes. They start to go a lot faster. Oh wow, they are enunciating every single word. I wonder what that means. Right. And so <laughs> I'm going to stop back and evaluate and I say, oh, they're gone. They're gone. And so here's the thing with the compassionate curiosity framework, that's what it's designed for. So anytime you see the specter of a problematic emotion, you know that it's time to acknowledge and validate emotions and you acknowledge and validate until it disappears. Sometimes it doesn't disappear. And that tells you that we're not going to have a productive conversation today. And then we use um, what I would like to call magic. Wow. You use magic? I use magic. And that magic is sleep. (laughs) Because because every time you go to bed, it's like a therapy session, right? Because when you think about the benefits of REM sleep, it is significant. The the book Matthew Walker wrote on why we sleep is really fascinating. You think about it, you can go to sleep really, really mad, but you don't usually wake up with the same level of rage. It's because there's emotional processing that happens. And so sometimes if somebody's really emotional, I sit back and let sleep do the work. I acknowledge emotions. I ask some questions. And then I say, listen, I think we've made a lot of progress today. And I'd like like to continue this conversation. Let's let's pick this up tomorrow. Or let's pick this up um, later this week. And then a couple days pass. Oh, look, they changed their perspective. Changed their (laughs) position. I didn't have to do anything. So this is in opposition to the old rune that says, never go to bed angry. Yeah, let them go to bed angry. (laughs) Yeah, because the thing is, again, let's even think about night. Let's think about what happens to the brain as the day goes on. So you you get up in the morning, you might work out, you go to school. You go to work, you might have to take your kids to school, you do a long work day, you put your kids down for bed. Are you at your best cognitively? No, you're not. And so your your frontal lobe is tired. And the thing is, think about what happens late at night. You're more likely to make mistakes late at night. Um, That's why when somebody's engaged in late night snacking, they're not usually going to get a salad. (laughs) <laughs> their their inhibitions are down and so emotionally your 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 ability to self-regulate is lower and so if you're ha- trying to have a conversation with especially somebody that you're close with most likely like your spouse or your partner whatever it happens to be most likely because of the way our days are structured it's going to happen at night when you're not at your best you're more likely to get an emotional and if that person is starting to get emotional it's going to make it more difficult for them to recover because they're tired. So I'm going to go ahead and let them sleep on this. Well, and, and like you said, you can't put the toothpaste back in, you know, the tube, right? And so you're tired, you're you're worn out, you're, you're not uh, thinking there. And you may say something uh, to your point. You talked about regret earlier. You may say something that you regret that 
if you just had a night to sleep on it, yeah, that's not going to happen. To so, to what degree, Kwame? We, earlier, you were talking about uh, fear of failure versus fear of regret, and uh, we had a conversation. We've had some conversations with researchers recently that kind of imply Roy Baumeister specifically re- implies that we make a lot of we can make a lot of decisions based on this anticipated regret that we are actually kind of putting ourselves in a future state to say, I don't think I want to do that because I don't want to regret it later. Um, And yet we also know, of course, there's a lot of emotion that drives our, our current behavior. Is there a sense of sort of present self versus future self in some of, in in this idea of fear of failure, which is very present versus fear of regret, which is more of a, a a future thing. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at too, because my thing is I'm going to make the assumption that the the future self is a little bit wiser than than the current self. (laughs) Ah. At least that's my hope. Oh, that would be, that would be sad. (laughs) It's the other direction. And so the, the benefit there is is the the perspective because right now the thing is it seems really important so an ant relative to the size of a human is very small but if you put your face really close to that ant it can look really big mm. so what i want to do is i want to take a step back and so i have a more accurate view of where this particular conversation sits as it relates to the entirety of my life and then mm. once i recognize that i say oh wow this this one isn't that big this one isn't that that big so we have to make a determination on how we're going to handle it and the thing is it doesn't mean that we're not going to have the conversation because we're going to say this conversation doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things it's like what we say is we're going to have the conversation but we're going to do it without that fear that focuses us on avoiding it because Mm -hmm. the thing is when we think about the term avoid a lot of times we say avoid as in not have it but you can still have that avoiding mentality with a conversation that you were unable to avoid so let's say it was an unavoidable conversation but you still have that uh, avoid approach just do it i shouldn't say avoid approach that avoid (laughs) mentality then you're just not going to engage at a high level you're going to be Mm -hmm. You're going to you're going to relent when you shouldn't relent. You're not going to be yeah. as assertive, and so uh, that's that's why I like to take a step back and think about it from the future, Kwame. Okay, that's I, I want to I want to shift a, a little bit. So uh, we were introduced to you by our mutual friend Brian Ahern, uh, and and when he introduced us, he sent me a, a webinar, a link to the webinar that you did on social justice and race and social justice, which by, by again really fascinating and again great insights on that and so but one of the things and and it was right at the time of george floyd um which you know we're in minneapolis so it was really felt pretty pretty strongly with it with both tim and me one of the things i just want to get at from you is is how do we have those tough conversations on race and social justice in this day and age with everything that's going on and and are there are, are there things that we need to be thinking about um uh, and particularly, and I'm, you know, coming from a white old male perspective here, you know, how do I go about having these types of conversations in an appropriate manner that that is reflective of, of what we need to do and, and be concerned about? Yeah. So one of the things we have to do, um, I guess we would say that it requires a, um, a an approach that avoids overthinking, but at the same okay. time requires some deeper thinking. <laughs> so let's let's get into that. So when we think about avoiding overthinking, the compassionate curiosity framework works the same way. 
The psychology okay. is the same. The emotions are just deeper. They're just stronger, right? So if you're talking to somebody who's very, very upset about the, the situation that we're experiencing here, you could, again, acknowledge and validate emotions. So when we're acknowledging, using psychological terms, this is affect labeling. So mm -hmm. we're labeling the emotions. It's been seen for years in numerous studies that that helps people calm down. And the reason is because once you label that emotion, it triggers the uh, ventral medial prefrontal cortex to either determine whether or not we are accepting or rejecting that label. So that's what causes people to slow down and, and calm down. So we're going to acknowledge it and say, hey, um, it, it sounds like this is really having a, an impact on you. It sounds like you're really bothered by this situation. And then they explain themselves. And then you say, yeah, that makes sense. It makes complete sense that you feel this way. That's the validation because people want to be understood. And mm -hmm. so you do that until the emotions go away. Here's the thing. A lot of times in these conversations about, about race and social justice, we always assume that somebody wants us to necessarily do something. And so we kind of push it to the, the problem solving portion of the conversation. Sometimes they just want to be heard. Mm. And that's, that's really it. And so listening. Just listening, acknowledging, and listening, asking questions. And one of the best questions that you can ask as you start to transition into getting curious with compassion is, how can I be supportive? Yeah. What can I do to be supportive to you as a friend? Really simple. And just to listen to what they say. And if you just stay really hold true to that form and just use a, a meat and potatoes approach to these conversations, it becomes a lot easier. Now, when it comes to the deeper thinking, we need to educate ourselves too. So we need to take some time to think about what are the, what are the concerns? What are the problems? What are the issues uh, as it relates to, to this situation? Um, and, and, and looking into that. So self-education is going to play a huge role. So you could be more aware of, of the role you do or do not play in this and what you can or, can sh or should not do in the situation to make the situation better. Thank you for that. Um, and, and, and thank you for bringing in the psychology terms on that. That was <laughs> of course. double bonus bundle on that. Um, yeah. So this is, this is, uh, I think sort of more specifically about applying what you just shared to, uh, uh, well, uh, relatives that are sort of concerned, uh, but not nearly as concerned as as I am about uh, what what's happened and what's happened with George Floyd. I mean, a man being murdered, at, you know, by the police is just, you know, really really hard for very incredibly difficult to deal with, right? But and I have some relatives who are. Yeah, they sort of share that, but not nearly at the same level, and and they don't see the social justice implications. So, if I were to take your advice uh, from the perspective of start with acknowledging, label, understand what their their concerns are, that they've got all kinds of other perspectives on this, and then and then taking it to a deeper to the deeper thinking, it, can that be posed back on them to challenge them to deeper thinking to higher education to uh, to better uh, for, for them to better understand what's going on? Yeah, definitely. Again, let's stick to the framework. And so you can use this regardless of whether you agree with somebody or not. We have to remember acknowledgement doesn't mean agreement. We can mm. acknowledge without agreeing. That's the first thing. And also remember empathy isn't a concession. 
a lot of times when it comes to these difficult conversations, let's say you're somebody who is really upset about what's happening, things need to change, everybody needs to be in on, on the change, and then they're talking to somebody who disagrees, they might feel it's a concession to empathize. I'm not going to listen to them or, or appreciate what it is that they say. Absolutely not. They need to change, not me right? That, yeah. That's the approach. And the thing is, it's not that empathy is a concession. It's a necessary part of the equation. Imagine if you're a soldier and um, they say, okay, we're going to invade this territory. All right, good deal. So what does the territory look like? Hey, no, no, no. We do not care what the territory looks like. We're going to do, go in. We're going to do our thing regardless of what the territory looks like. Wait, sir, don't you think it's important to know what the territory looks like in order for us to competently move forward <laughs> in this engagement? No, screw the territory. We're going to do it our way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you going to persuade somebody if, if you don't understand where they're coming from? Yeah. You don't need to agree. You just need to recognize what the barriers are. And once you uh, appreciate and uh, acknowledge what those barriers are, then you can structure your argument or your conversation to address those specific barriers. So yeah. what would this look like? So we can say, yeah, it doesn't seem like you you think this is such a big deal. No, I think they're blowing this way out of proportion. I think they're bigger issues, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, it's, it sounds like you think that this is um, this is doing more harm than good. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's doing more harm than good. Look at all the riots. Look at all these things. It sounds like you think that kind of restoring order should be one of the priorities. Absolutely. Okay, great. All right, so now they're starting to calm down. It's not that I agree with them. I can I can acknowledge and listen and see, yeah, it, that makes sense. I think mm -hmm. order is something that that's really important. So what do you think is causing all of this? Now we're transitioning into getting curious with compassion. Well, they everybody got mad because of that George Floyd situation. So what, what in your opinion, what happened there? Well, you know, a cop made a mistake. He shouldn't have done what he did, but I don't think that's a big issue in this situation. Okay. Fair enough. Um, and so what do you think in the minds of the people who are protesting, mm. what do you think this means on a bigger scale? Not just in this particular situation, but on a bigger scale. Okay, well, it sounds like there seems to be a, a bit of a pattern. I'm not sure. I haven't seen anything in, in my experience uh, that suggests there's a pattern, but it sounds like they're, they're complaining about some kind of pattern of injustice or something like that. Okay, could it possibly be that because of your perspective and your lived experience that you just haven't had the opportunity to see that? Well, I, I guess it could be. Well, yeah. All right. See, now we're slowly inching our way toward it. Because the thing is, we're, we're letting them convince themselves. I, I, I barely said anything. <laughs> I just asked some questions and listened and then saw where they were coming from. Okay, this is what you're seeing. Now I get what you're missing. Now I can have the conversation and pull you in that direction. I think the important piece that you said there is empathy doesn't uh, align with agreement, right? It, you need to understand. Again, it's understanding the what's the what's the territory that we need to go into, and we need to understand what that looks like, and what are the what are the things that are that are going to be there. So, and I think Tim is probably itching to do some musical conversation. I am. I am. I want to know what's on your playlist right now. Have you got a COVID playlist going on? <laughs> no. <laughs> Try not to think about it as much as possible. Okay. I, um, so I, I usually listen to music in the mornings. So in, when I'm at mm. the gym. And so I like things with bass. And so, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, so I like dubstep. 
I like yeah. hip hop, rap, and um, I, I grew up in Tiffin, Ohio, so um, small town Ohio. And uh, so in my when when I was playing sports there, the, what was uh, blaring in the speakers was ACDC. So I like old rock, <laughs> and so the thing that I've I've been really getting into is um, the the song that's really speaking to me right now is "Under the Graveyard" by Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, love that song when it's um when it's uh when I'm lifting heavy um because yeah. it talks about death and I'm like man death would feel great right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean the thing is that my, my my listening tastes have evolved a lot because as a as a Caribbean American raised on Bob Marley, Calypso, Soca, dancehall music, and so there's um there's a limited amount of that there's less than other genres because we're we're there are not many of us compared yeah. to other parts of the world right so um I've, I've learned to diversify my my listening too but yeah. the contribution is outsized as far as i'm concerned the contribution that that uh, that caribbean music uh, brings to uh well uh, reggae specifically mm-hmm. you, you mentioned soca you know uh there's a, a lot of really great music that has uh come from that region that has influenced the whole world with rhythms with uh well i mean africa a pretty yeah. you know i write historical you know african rhythms have influenced everything in rock and roll pretty much exactly so, so yeah. it's a, it's a, it's an oversized uh, impact really I agree. I agree, and it's and it's cool to see it creeping into other genres. You see it with um with uh with dubstep. It's really yeah. creeping in uh, with major laser. Um, you're seeing a lot of that uh, influence there. Um, ska, of course, old school, really old yeah. school. But yeah. you see that influence. It's it's so funny. Very few people. Ska was not very. I mean, it was popular where it was, but it didn't really travel as much, but it did travel, like you said, Tim, in the influences it had in other genres. So my, my wife is a huge clash fan and, and the, the impact that, that Scott had on the clash is just yeah. amazing. Or the police, that. you know, or the police or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, I, I have to say Ozzy Osbourne was my first concert I went to back in 1983. Oh, wow. So that he is still <laughs> out there bringing in good, you know, music that people are listening to is, is That's amazing wild. to me. So uh, Kwame, one of the questions that we ask, we're actually, uh, um, doing some work with uh, helping out a, a researcher on this is, is, do you listen to music when you work? You said you listen to music when you work out, but are, you know, if, if you're writing or doing anything like that, is music in the background or do you need silence? Well, um, I'm going to answer like a lawyer and say it depends. <laughs> <laughs> it, it depends. If I am doing work that I enjoy, I want silence. Okay. It to be quiet. And so I might, if I'm doing creative work, sometimes I like to go on walks and dictate my thoughts and mm-hmm. um, I have my, my team actually take it and put it into article form. Um, if I'm reviewing a contract for a, a client or whatnot, again, I like silence, but if I'm doing something, actually, no, if I'm reviewing a contract, I'll, I'll do classical, classical. Piano. Okay. Um, but if I'm doing something that I don't really like too much. That's when I need some some uh, some encouragement, and that honestly, that's again, it's psychology, it's yeah. um, classical conditioning. Okay, I feel good when I listen to this music. I am going to listen to this music while I check my emails and go through all my LinkedIn messages. Okay, so now I can do it. I can push through because I get a, a ton of messages on LinkedIn, and I tell my listeners, and I'll, I'll tell your listeners too. Reach out to me if you connect with me. I'll, I'll send a personal message to everybody that connects with me. Um, the thing is, I'm. About 
about three months behind. <laughs> so I need to keep on doing it. And so when I'm when I'm checking emails or checking my my messages, I uh, I like to listen to smooth jazz because that's ah. what I used to listen to to study in um in school. And so I would listen to it, study for my assignments and everything. And then I would say, kind of envision what my life could possibly be like after I get through school and I'm living the life that I want. (laughs) And so I have to, I listen to that smooth jazz to remind me, hey, you're kind of living the life that you dreamed of. So get over it, get through this email. It's not that bad. Oh. Is there are there any artists or, or is smooth jazz just sort of a blah, just sort of a category, or did you ha- do you have any artists that you're like, oh yeah, I actually like to go to Bob James or a Clue, you know something? Yeah, like that. I like um, I like George Benson. Um, oh I, yeah, I like um, I like Grover Washington. Um, I like uh, David Benoit. Um, yeah, there there are a few people that um, that that come to mind a lot. The thing that's tough with with smooth jazz and keeping up with the the artists is that um, there's usually no words, and if it does have words, I skip I skip the song. I'm like, I did not come here for words. Grover Washington, yeah, Grover Washington can trip you up every now and then because he might he want can. to throw a tune with some some lyrics in. Yeah, he can. Yeah. Oh, Lee Retinor. Written, written oh, well. yeah yeah oh and the um the rippingtons i like i like 90s smooth jazz a lot wow this is a fun conversation i never get to talk about my my bizarre musical blends <laughs> i was gonna <laughs> you have an eclectic mix you're talking about classical when you're you know reviewing contracts to smooth jazz to to ozzy osborne and in david the with dubstep and, <laughs> oh man i'm i'm pretty sure that we've never never had a conversation that included uh major laser and uh, the Rippingtons and Ozzy Osbourne had <laughs> <laughs> the same conversation. So, sure, yeah, uh, awesome. I think that we've just accomplished something fantastic. It was it was a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. And and thank you. If people wanted to reach you, how how can they they get a hold of you? Yes, reach out to me on LinkedIn, but be patient. <laughs> and, and then um, if you're interested in negotiation and conflict resolution trainings, check out the website. We have a contact form there. Um, those are the two best ways. And then also uh, people, I, I come, I've come to terms with the, the fact that people only follow me on Instagram to see Kai, which is okay. Um, so, so Kwame Negotiates is my uh, Instagram handle. All right. Well, fantastic, Kwame. And again, thank you very much. Thank you. No, it was my pleasure. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves discussion, have a free flowing conversation on those topics and talk about whatever else comes into our negotiating brains. Well, I mean, that's the way I feel about it, Kurt. I'm not sure if you feel about it, but I'm sure that if we we talk about this in the right way, we could probably come to a consensus that actually works for both of us. And no, I win, you lose, man. Come on. (laughs) That's how it goes. I have the better arguments. I am going to win this negotiation. I'm going to kick your puny white ass. There we go. And I don't care about your perspectives at all. So (laughs) (laughs) who you, why would I care about you? It's all about me. 
No, this is, I, I loved Kwame's perspective on this. Because again, we think about negotiation as this win, I win, you lose, I get what I want. That means you can't get what you want. And that's not really what he's saying. He's saying, look, there's a lot of different ways to go about this. And I really loved his concept around um, uh, compassionate curiosity, right? Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, from the book. Yeah. It might be actually worth just reiterating those three principles because it's so foundational, right? Like this idea of starting with acknowledge and validating emotions. Oh my gosh. How, how incredibly foundational is that just to say, okay, you're a real person. You actually have, you have feelings about this. Whatever your perspective is, I'm going to openly express acknowledgement of your and validation of your emotion. That is so empowering to both people, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, and and the, the second thing is uh, getting curious with compassion. Oh man, how many times have we heard this recently, right? That compassionate curiosity is so important to start a conversation with, so tell me about how you're feeling or why do you feel this way? Let's talk about it. Let me learn about you. And his example was 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 absolutely fantastic, right? Um, but this idea of starting with listening is so, so important uh, that we start our, our negotiation conversations that way. And the third thing was to, to actually enter into joint problem solving, not me trying to persuade you that the only way to get this done is my way, but let's figure out together how to get it done. Yeah. And, and I know this will come up later, but that, that discovery part, I think, is really key that there are other alternatives than even the one that you might be thinking of. But I wanted to go back to this idea of acknowledging and validating emotions, because one of the things that I think was insightful that he brought up, and I'm going to try to quote this, is he said, we don't handle the emotional side. We don't get to wrestle with the substance at a high level, and we wonder why things are going so poorly. Yeah, It's this concept that when we're when we're in these types of negotiations, particularly if it's at a, you know, in a business situation, variety of different things, we are put into system two thinking. We're put into cognitively focusing in on here are my goals. Here are the, the things that I want to achieve. Here's their statement, their positioning. And we come at it at a very rational component. And what we know, what we understand about humans is that as much as we think we're really rational creatures, we are emotional at the core. And if we don't handle that emotional side, as he said, we're never going to get to the optimal solution because we just have to address that emotional uh, and validate those emotions because they're real and they have an influence on us. Yeah. There was a, a selling technique that came into fashion 10 years ago or so. Uh, and it started uh, with them. It started with like the first thing that you're going to do in any kind of presentation or consideration about a negotiation is to talk about your customer, is to start mm-hmm. with your customer story, not just to re- reiterate the facts that you know about them, but why they're doing what they're doing. And, and when I saw this in practice, people who, who executed it well did it really well, and the effect was tremendous. So this idea of just starting the conversation with, we know that you're coming, that, that you've invited us here to talk about our product because you have this problem. And let's, and let's talk about what that problem means to you. Like that shed 
a tiny little bit of light on compassion that uh, really made a difference in the way people responded. It was re- a remarkably powerful tool. Well, and, and it's like, let's understand this product or this solution from your perspective and what are those emotional components? And so getting at that, right, which then gets into some creativity around the solution. And you can think about that from a sales perspective, right? You go in, you want to sell it. Maybe, you know, if it's a product, it may not be the same thing, but, you know, we're going in oftentimes and selling solutions, consultative solutions. And we're often going in with a limited knowledge of exactly what's going on, right? We try to do as much discovery work as we can, but when we're in those conversations, if we're open to this and, and, and curious with compassion, right, and, and trying to understand what their need is, then that solution that we might have come to the table with and, and is in our slide deck, that may get modified because right. we're understanding the situation and we're, we're joint problem solving as he talks about. And so all of a sudden this going out and, and hey, let's go and do this diagnostic first and we're going to interview these people and, and do a survey. Well, maybe that changes. Maybe all of a sudden, no, what we really need to do is we need to do some ride-alongs with these people. Maybe we need to get even deeper into this, or maybe we don't need to do that at all because it's already been done. Whatever that would be, finding out what that real need is and, and understanding the pain points behind it those are really key. And you can do that in this situation. And you need a growth mindset to make that happen. You can't go into this with a fixed mindset of saying, I've already architected the solution in my mind. And anything that you say if, if is going to either fit or not fit, you know? So right. if you say something that doesn't fit, well, I'm just going to throw that out. Well, that that's terrible because we do come up with better solutions when we work together. Yeah. And you talked about relying on listening and empathy, right? As a way of starting that conversation. And so, right, we, we need to stop and think. And I loved, he, he talked about this developing unnatural responses to these situations. And it is, it's an unnatural response because when we hear something, we're automatically, our brain typically goes into, into what's our response to this. And it's not really listening. It's, and it's not listening to understand. It's listening to how do, I, how do I persuade this person to my point of view as opposed to trying to understand so we can come to a joint solution. So I think that's it. Yeah. And then he talks about this, you know, you have to practice these unnatural ways, yeah. right? You have to practice that. And so it's this habit that you get into. And he talks about every... Every moment, you know, in the grocery store is an opportunity to practice my negotiation skills, and I'm like, all right, that might be a little much for most people, but, but I do think that there is getting them this habit of thinking in these unnatural ways, and I love this Tim, right? Because he talked about grooves, and he used yeah. groove in our brain. Yes. yes Not a groove in a record. Nope. Grooves oh. in our brain, Tim. Grooves oh. in our brain. That's what behavioral grooves is all about. No, let me just let me just convince you with the facts on this, Kurt. Because, uh, <laughs> <told> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I also want to uh, to kind of get back to his his discussion about reframing conversations. Oh, yeah, right. That that was absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, when as as he connects everything to looking for opportunities, 
right? Rather than seeing things as a threat, look at them as an opportunity. And, and, you know, salespeople talk about this all the time. You know, this is, this is, it, it feels like it's more natural in the sales community. But what, how great would it be if, if people in, in UX or CX or HR um, or, you know, analytics saw challenges as opportunities. Again, this kind of gets back to a mindset thing, but but reframing it as, okay, so if I'm just creative enough, what did he say? Um, if you're creative enough, you can find a way out of it, right? Right. So, and that takes work. That takes effort. That takes mental effort to do it. But what a great payoff if we if we start to exercise that muscle and and really get good at looking at at challenges as opportunities. Well, and he talked about fear, right? And, and and a lot of the things that are holding us back is fear and fear of rejection, fear of making somebody mad, fear of whatever that would be. And I loved the way that he talked about reframing that fear, right? So it's this reframing the fear of the moment into fear of regret. Yeah. Right? This this idea and Roy Baumeister brought this up. He said, we can do many things in our life, right? But we have to think about that future self of ours and what are they going to think? I think Kwame said something about a, that deathbed perspective, right? Yeah. When my life is done, how will I feel about what I did and didn't do? And I think the piece that we miss often is not about what I did, but it's about the things I didn't do. Oh, yeah. Based on choices that we make, based on yeah. the choices that, that we make. Well, it's just, it's the conversation that we don't have. It's the, the sticking up for your principles or your, you know, your ideas because you were afraid that they weren't good enough or that somebody was going to, you know, think that you are stupid or the the fear of not trying something new because you're not sure about what it, what it's going to, the outcome is going to be. And those are the regrets that I think we can have. And if we take that perspective of looking back, like doing a pre-mortem on your whole life almost, right? It's, it's looking back and saying, what are the things that I really will regret? And I don't even think you have to go to your deathbed. You can just go, you know, a year out, five years out, 10 years out. How about next week? That. Next <laughs> How about in, in five minutes when I regret what I just said here, you know? <laughs> right. Which reminds me of the conversation we, we have with Kwame about personal life negotiations. Because this was a big damn deal as far as I was concerned. He was so open and so honest about having not, no, not only kind of a cute conversation with his son, but, but with his wife, right? Yeah. I just loved his willingness to be vulnerable and to talk about the very real pain of having real differences in a, in a deeply loving and deeply committed relationship and how you go about that and slow down and, you know, slow things down and it's okay to go to bed mad were like fabulous nuggets for me. Right. I mean, you know, even if, uh, even if the argument's over cereal, you know, there you go. That, that's a big thing. No, but this all goes back into, you know, part of his talk was saying, who, who are you, right? And, and bring your self-identity into this. And this is to change that mindset. So who's the person that you want to be, right? We believe in that future self, that, that wiser, better person, and really understanding that. And I think what's really interesting is that lines up with, with research that I've seen on self-identity, where the, the way you talk about yourself, 
the way that you present yourself in your own mind, but also to others is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And this gets into behavior. So the, the kind of examples that gets used a lot is around, uh, I'm on a diet, so I need to eat healthy versus uh, I eat healthy because I'm a healthy person. Big difference. The reframing of that message to yourself changes this, you know, I'm on a diet. Well, all right. Diet isn't me. This is, I'm just doing this for this moment versus I'm a healthy person. Healthy people eat healthy. You know, I tell the truth is different than I'm an honest person, right? Seems minute, but it can make a big difference in actually how we, we go about our lives. Yeah. well, it, it reminds me of in the in the in the 1980s there was a there was a big push of dress for success, like like live into the the future career moves that you want to make by how you dress. So even if your job today is kind of a you know grunt guy on the front lines, you know think about dressing for for what that that next job is. And while that doesn't so much apply today. Uh, from a dress perspective, from how you, how you, you know, yeah, I know you look fabulous today. <laughs> <laughs> My t-shirt and sweatshirt. Yeah. You're dressing for your next job. I think, I think that's great, <laughs> but it, it does, it does get into the mental framing of, are we thinking about our future self? Are we imagining a future condition that we want to live into in the way that we talk to our, our fellow employees, the way that we talk to, uh, and, and, um, hold meetings with with other people at work are we thinking about our future self is this the way my executive self might behave and right. to consider that every now and then put us in a different frame well it reminds me of the fake it till you make it right yeah so the yeah. idea of if i can just you know fake this for a while then i will i will eventually get it and and that there's a there's a kernel of truth to that yeah. right Absolutely. So, Kurt, what uh, there was one other thing that we talked about racial issues, uh, mm. about having tough conversations about racial issues. And it was really great to have Kwame go through that story. He actually, you know, kind of talked through both sides of that story of I say this, you say this. We're on we're on different sides of the equation. And of course, he's so clever, he's so Aristotelian, right? In the way that he 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 talks, you know, or you know, this 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 uh this idea of asking really clever questions that he's that he of course he's only asking because he's listening to the way the other person is responding, right? It's right. A, empathetic listening, this compassionate curiosity that he does so, so well. And I think that we can learn those. That's a skill. That's a skill that we can all learn and and grow from. Yeah. The idea that empathy is not a concession, right? That that concept of having that empathetic perspective, again, taking his compassionate curiosity into this world as well. Why, why do you hold that belief? What is it that is under, there, there's a reason for that. And, and you may disagree with the reason, but if you don't understand that reason, you will be talking at each other as of talk about instead of talking with each other. And so you, you have to both understand that from the other person and they have to understand yours. And that actually opens it up to saying, you know, going back to our original thing, like, is my mind so closed off that I don't have an opportunity to change my own beliefs and different pieces. 
Yeah. And you have to be a little bit open and that's scary because when you're opening yourself up like that, you may realize that the beliefs that you hold aren't necessarily the best ones. Our future self is hopefully going to be wiser than our present self. Yeah, let's hope. So let's let's move toward uh, our future self. Yeah. Well, my future self better be a lot damn better than my present self because this is pretty sad, right? I, I was thinking, this I'm is, joking. No, no, I think you're right. Your future <laughs> better be better. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Anyway, I love that he liked Ozzy Osbourne. So there you go. Yeah, let's end on that. How about that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, people, hang on. Uh, I'll be coming back to you with a bonus track shortly. We are grateful to converse with many great thinkers, and Kwame Christian is someone who will stand out in our minds forever. Hey, Groovers, this is Kurt with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. Kwame left us with many fabulous sound bites to carry forward into work and life, but rather than reshare all of those sound bites, we want you to keep a couple things in mind. First, Kwame tells us that negotiation is an opportunity to learn. It's the art of discovery. It's a branding tool. It's a path to better relationships, and it's a way to live a happier life. All those things are possible under his masterful, compassionate curiosity framework that includes these three foundations. Start with acknowledging and validating emotions. Then get curious with compassion And finally, use negotiation for joint problem solving. We can become better users of this framework with the proper mindset and with reflecting on situations when we wanted something and didn't get it. Kwame urges us to view our lives as learning opportunities, but you have to look closely to see them first. Lastly, he gave us a great model for having tough discussions with people who may not see eye to eye with us and used an example of race relations. He walked through some very simple questions with his own framework to validate the other's emotion, used compassionate curiosity to discover why someone felt a certain way, then looked for places where joint problem solving might emerge. It's inspirational to listen to how easy he made it sound. Okay, now it's time for the Groove Idea of the Week. Tim and I would like you to consider sorting through your own feelings on an issue, then try to sit down with someone close to you who might not share the same beliefs. This might be scary, but it'll be a positive thing for you. Tell them that you've learned some things about having difficult conversations and you want their help in testing out this new framework. Then ask them questions and listen to what they have to say. Be empathetic. Be curious, be creative, find ways to put Kwame's framework to good use. And as always, let us know what you think. We would love to hear from you. With that, it's time to wrap up this episode of Behavior Grooves. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Kwame and that you go out and find your groove this week. <laughs>